When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. The podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Hey everyone, it's Patrick. We really need your help, your time, and your financial support. We fund ITB through subscriptions to our All Audio Q Bank, which you can find inside the free to download inside the board's Audio Q Bank mobile app for either Android or Apple devices. Um, and stay tuned for a message at the end, which kind of explains more um, as to why. I'm saying that a little bit more personal. And uh, as always, Boards Insiders, thanks for listening. This episode is our effort to ensure that we continue to give consistent content on ITB's podcast. With thanks to Elsevier, our partner and the providers of content for our Crush Step 1 podcast and USMLE Step 2 Secrets podcast, this is Dr. Raj's Case of the Month. Because it was originally a webinar presentation, you may hear references to slides or images. Um, So that's intentional, but I still think it's useful. Around 14 minutes into the start of the presentation, uh, Dr. Raj refers to, I believe, the x-axis of the um, hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve um, as the y-axis. He flips them, so just be on note for that. Um, so just note that, uh, you know, it's, it was originally intended to have an accompanying PowerPoint, which you can find on Elsevier's Student Hub, which is linked in the show notes. Hi, I'm Dr. Raj here, and welcome to my Beyond the Pearls case of the month. I'm always excited to be here and talk to you folks. So I hope you enjoyed last month's case. And so I wanted to mix it up. And this time, my theme is going to be what I love to do best, which is integrate. Integrate what? The basic science with the clinical medicine to make sure you definitely go beyond the pearls for your board exams. So let's do a clinical vignette. And when I say beyond the pearls, this is going to be cases from my book series that has medicine, peds, OB, surgery, psychiatry, and it's going to take what you need to know at all different levels of the USMLE to make sure you do well. So in this case, we have a 42-year-old woman with severe smoke inhalation from a house fire. She's in the emergency room, emergency 
department. Uh, the patient complains of severe headache, has a cherry red discoloration to the skin and her mucous membranes. Which of the following lab findings is most likely present. So before we look at the choices together, and I'm going to you know, walk through them all with you, is that, you know, what, what do you feel here? What is going to be the problem? Of course, severe smoke inhalation, a house fire. What type of toxicity kind of jumps to mind? Oh my God, you guys are totally amazing. This screams what? Carbon monoxide. No, definitely. And, you know, based upon this very brief clinical vignette, would you say this is some mild carbon monoxide toxicity? No, it's it's pretty severe. And what parts of the vignette say this is severe? Of course, headaches. You know what else will make it severe? Chest pains. People always ask me, well, how do people die from carbon monoxide toxicity? And there are two main organs I always worry about. Number one, the CNS, the central nervous system, the brain. Why? Is because when you have carbon monoxide, decrease oxygenation to the brain, and what could happen? Oh, you got it. Maybe some seizures, mental status changes. And you know what she has right now? Severe headache. And what other organ do I worry about in carbon monoxide toxicity? Oh, you guys are amazing. That's right. The heart. And what could happen to the heart? Well, if you have decreased oxygenation going to the heart, you can get what? Yes, arrhythmias because of that irritable foci. And sometimes you could even get a myocardial infarction from decreased oxygen delivery to that heart through those coronary arteries. So in those cases, you definitely want to be aggressive. And since we already have severe headaches and it looks like she has this cherry red discoloration of the skin, I mean, this is something that tells me it's very severe carbon monoxide toxicity. So of course, like in many vignettes, the first thing is identifying what the problem is most likely going to be. And this is a classic question, whether you're taking step one all the way to step three about carbon monoxide. Do you know it? And how do we answer these questions? So let's look at these labs and choices I meant. So what are going to be our choices? Um, let's uh, work them together. So when someone has carbon monoxide toxicity, well, let's start from the bottom up. Are they going to have a normal oxygen content? Stop right there. Well, if you want to answer that question, well, you need to know what is total oxygen content. And total oxygen content is made of three main things, but only two are going to be measurable. Once again, three main things but only two are gonna be measurable. So let's work it out together. What are the three parts of total oxygen content? Number one is the oxygen bound to hemoglobin. And if I were to ask you, what is the clinical name of the oxygen bound to hemoglobin? Most of you would say what? It's called the oxygen saturation, very good. And how do we get that oxygen saturation? Well, usually like from a pulse ox or sometimes from arterial blood gas, and that can definitely be measurable. The second part of total oxygen content is your dissolved oxygen. Sometimes you refer to that as the P little a O2, the partial pressure of arterial oxygen. And sometimes we say that's the oxygen tension in the blood. Can you measure that? The answer is yes. And how do we measure the partial pressure of arterial oxygen? Well, there's only one test to order. That's gonna be a what? ABG. So those two things are the measurable parts of total oxygen content. The third part is going to be a concept that you can't really measure, and that's the concept of the oxygen dissociation curve. I agree. So those three things make up total oxygen content. You know what? If one of those three things goes down, 
what happens to total oxygen content? It definitely goes down. So when we talk about carbon monoxide, well, you know what? Let me ask you this question. Does carbon monoxide, does it kind of like hemoglobin? You know what? It loves it. So if it's going to love hemoglobin, it's going to steal one of these oxygen binding spots. So you know what's going to happen to the O2 sat? Yeah, it's kind of going to go what? Down. So if one goes down, then total oxygen content has to go down. So is it going to be normal? The answer is no. So I'm going to cross this off. What about D? The serum bicarb is going to go up. Now, if you have an elevated serum bicarb, you probably have a what? Acidosis or alkalosis. Oh, once again, you guys are amazing. You're going to be alkalotic. And if you had carbon monoxide, I usually don't think of abnormalities in the serum bicarbonate. But if anything, if someone had very severe uh, carbon monoxide toxicity and you're not delivering oxygen to tissues, they can't utilize it, you'd probably develop a lactic acidosis, which is a metabolic acidosis. And in that case, what would the serum bicarb be? You got it. It would be low. It wouldn't be what? Increased. So based upon that, I would take off D. So we're now we're down to A, B, and C. Now, uh-oh, look at choice C, another concept here, which is going to be the A, a gradient. And you know what? This motivates me for my next video. I think I'm going to talk about the AA gradient. If you like me to talk about it, hey, uh, give some responses or, you know, um, send me a message if you think that's a great idea for the next talk. But what is the AA gradient? The big A stands for the alveoli. The little a stands for the uh, arterial, mainly the capillaries, the blood in the capillaries. So what does it mean? It's checking the diffusion of a gas from the alveoli, through the alveoli, through the interstitium, and into the vessels. So if there's a problem in the alveoli, or a problem in the interstitium, or a problem in the capillaries, well, that's going to cause the AA gradient to widen. But let me ask you this. What is the problem in this patient? It's going to be carbon monoxide toxicity. Now, does carbon monoxide per se destroy the alveoli? Probably not. What about the interstitium? The answer is no. What about the capillary? The answer is no. So what's the problem? It's going to be that extra gas. So it, there will not be a diffusion problem. So the AA gradient should be what? You got it. It should be normal. So C is going to be gone. So now we're down to guessing. And you know what? There is no guessing after this video. So when we talk about, you know, choice B, a decreased P little AO2, the partial pressure of arterial oxygen, well, you have to ask yourself, step one pearl, what are the only things that can contribute to uh, manipulating the value of the P little AO2? Well, I can always think of the big three. What are the big three things that affect the P little AO2? Number one, well, how much oxygen did I give you? That's called the FiO2. The more oxygen I give you or take away from you, that will make the value of the P little AO2 go up or down. The second thing is going to be what? Atmospheric pressure. And of course, the higher you're going to go up, the P little AO2 is going to go down. Very good. And then what's going to be that third thing? The minute ventilation. So if you're going to be hyper or hypoventilating, that's going to affect the P little AO2. So 
what's the problem here? Are these are things that are going to affect the FiO2? Are these things that are going to affect um, your altitude being high or low altitude? Are these things that are going to affect your minute ventilation? The answer is no, this is carbon monoxide. So the PO2 should be what? Should be normal. So, but just by process of elimination, what's the answer going to be here? It's going to be A. But this is not about just process of elimination. So when we talk about carbon monoxide toxicity, and if I put a pulse ox in someone who has this, what is the pulse ox going to read? That's right, 100%. So you're like, wait a minute, didn't you just say the O2 cell would be decreased, Dr. Raj? I did. Remember, when you do a pulse ox, you're only measuring one wavelength of hemoglobin, which is called what? That's right, oxyhemoglobin. So the pulse ox will be great. But if you want to diagnose carbon monoxide toxicity, you need what's called a cooximeter. You need to do an arterial blood gas and measure what level diagnoses carbon monoxide toxicity. And the answer is, you guys are amazing, a carboxyhemoglobin level. With the history, the physical, and that carboxyhemoglobin level, you definitely make the diagnosis. And that's why you need a cooximeter to measure this because we know that in the hemoglobin, it has four bonding spots for oxygen. One will be taken up by what? Carbon monoxide. And because one is taken up by carbon monoxide, the O2 sat needs to be what? Low. So the answer here is A. So what are going to be my bullet points over here? Carbon monoxide poisoning is definitely common when we talk about a household and think about other toxicities too. Think about cyanide, of course, that could some people even have both. That's horrible. What did I mention already is that carbon monoxide loves uh, hemoglobin. We need to talk about this oxygen dissociation curve because we need to talk about which way is it going to shift the curve. And I put these last two bullet points here to kind of show you this picture. This is going to be a cooximeter. So when you do an arterial blood gas, you need to bring it to a cooximeter to actually measure that carboxyhemoglobin level. Now, with that being said, I definitely want to give you even more bonus knowledge. So let's do a little beyond the pearls integration. Let's talk about that oxygen dissociation curve. This is going to be triple star high yield for the board exams. So when we talk about this curve, you know, let's look at the axis first. On the y-axis, what are we showing? This is going to be the percent of hemoglobin that's saturated with oxygen, starting off at 20, going all the way up to 100% saturated. And then on the y-axis, this is going to be the P little a O2, the partial pressure of arterial oxygen, referred to as the oxygen tension, and it's going up, 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 up. And this is going to be 100, and we have our wonderful curve over here. And this is why we know, based upon the P little a O2 and its value, what percent of the hemoglobin is going to be saturated with oxygen. And then when we think about this curve, it's going to shift to the right or shift to the left. And this is where they love these questions on the board exams. And this is definitely part of what? Total oxygen content, but you can't measure it. It's more of a concept. So let's talk about what shifts the curve to the right. So when I think about uh, a little uh, mnemonic I think of, I think of we tap to the right. So what does tap stand for? T stands for temperature. So what 
would the temperature be? The shift to curve to the right? Yeah, it's going to be high. You're going to be febrile. So let's think of an analogy. So I'm a medical ICU doctor. Um, what is something that uh, can occur in the medical ICU that I see all the time that can give you fevers? The answer is sepsis. And when you are septic, do you crave oxygen? Does your body, does the tissues crave oxygen? The answer is yes. And because it craves oxygen, which way do you want to shift the curve? You want to shift it to the right. So let me just say this. What does it mean when we shift a curve to the right? That means that you're willing to give off oxygen to the starving tissue. So shifting the curve to the right means that you have a decreased affinity for the oxygen to be bound to the hemoglobin because it wants to go where? It wants to go to the starving tissue because the tissues need oxygen. Shifting curve to the right, decreased affinity. And let's keep on going. So T stands for temperature. So what does the A stand for? It stands for acidotic, being acidosis. And in that case, what would the pH be? Yes, it's going to be low. So let's go back to my first analogy about sepsis. So who could tell me what type of metabolic acidosis do I commonly see in patients who are going to be septic? That's right. It's going to be lactic acidosis. And if you're going to be acidotic, do you want oxygen to go to the tissues? The answer is yes. So which way are you going to shift that curve? To the right. And then the last P stands for what? Phosphate. And to be specific, that's 2,3-DPG, or in some textbooks, they say 2,3-BPG, doesn't matter. And what is this? Well, this is going to be a protein that, well, anytime you're hypoxic, for whatever reason, COPD, pulmonary fibrosis, cystic fibrosis, that when you're hypoxic, you have increased levels of 2,3-DPG, meaning that please give oxygen to the tissues. So high levels of this will shift the curve which way? To the right. So always think about tap to the right. Now, when we talk about which way will shift the curve to the left, going to the left means that there's an increased affinity of oxygen here. It doesn't want to give it off. It wants to stay tightly bound to the hemoglobin itself. So of course, going to the left is going to be the opposite of tap. So it's going to be being hypothermic, being alkalemic, and it's going to be low levels of 2,3-DPG. But on the USMLE, what are some unique ways to shift a curve to the left? Well, some, a couple of them just jumped to my mind. So a couple of unique ways to go to the left will be, number one, of course, what did we just talk about here? Carbon monoxide. <clears throat> so when we think about carbon monoxide, it actually loves to bind to the hemoglobin and it prevents oxygen from going to the starving tissues. And that's what you're seeing all those clinical problems with. So shifting the curve to the left, carbon monoxide. What's another thing that shifts to the left on step one? Myoglobin. Myoglobin loves to keep that oxygen where? Bound tight to the hemoglobin, not give it to the starving tissues. What would be another way that will shift a curve when we talk about to the left? And the answer is, you think about fetal hemoglobin. Fetal hemoglobin is going to be a huge part of that. So it's always important about thinking unique ways to shift a curve to the left. Now, I would notice up here, it says decreased P50, 
Over here, it says increased P50. And you may be thinking, well, what is this P50? So P50 is the oxygen tension, because remember that's gonna be on the x-axis, when hemoglobin is 50% saturated with oxygen. And as we said, as the hemoglobin oxygen affinity increases, this is going to the left. Well, what's gonna to happen to the P50? It's going to decrease. When there's a decreased affinity for um, oxygen to the hemoglobin, the P50 is going to increase, and that's going to the right. So now that we mentioned about the oxygen association curve and talked about shifting to the right and to the left, let me ask you this question. Can you shift the curve up? Can you shift the curve down? And the answer is yes. So I want you to realize that, you know, what will actually shift the curve up? Well, that means you're going to have, well, more hemoglobin, more taxicabs to carry that oxygen. What will shift the curve down would be, well, if you have less hemoglobin. So going up will be called being polycythemic. And for the boards, anytime someone's polycythemic, what would be the best first initial test to order to figure out the etiology, the cause of the polycythemia? Oh, you guys are amazing. What hormone am I thinking about? Yes, EPO, erythropoietin. And how does that help me out? Well, if the erythropoietin is going to be high, well, I know it's, it might be a reactive polycythemia. And what is a very common cause of a reactive polycythemia? You got it, being hypoxic. When you're hypoxic, you want to make more what? Taxicabs to carry what? Oxygen. So it's going to shift the curve up. Now, what if the another reason that you could have a high erythropoietin level and it's not reactive? cancer, unfortunately. And who could tell me what cancer is associated with a high erythropoietin level? Oh man, you guys are amazing. Kidney tumors like renal cell carcinoma, where you increase because you have a lot of uh, erythropoietin, which is made in the kidney. Now, if it's not going to be reactive, then what's going to be the other side where you have a low erythropoietin level? That's right. The problem can be where? In the bone marrow. And what diagnosis am I thinking about? polycythemia vera. And polycythemia vera belongs to what category of disorders? You guys are amazing. The myeloproliferative disorders. And when we think about, you know, polycythemia vera, what's always going to be the question on the board? What genetic test do we always think about? That's right. The JAK2 mutations. You guys are totally amazing. So anytime you're going to be polycythemic, regardless of the etiology, which way are you going to shift this uh, dissociation curve? up. Now, the opposite is going to be when you're anemic. And anytime we talk about anemia, and this could be a different, a whole different talk. So if you want me to talk about anemia for the next one, let me know. But when you're anemic, what is the best first initial thing to look at to categorize your differential diagnosis? The answer is the MCV. What does that stand for? The mean corpuscle volume. And to keep it simple for this video, I mean, it's either going to be low, where we have a microcytic anemia, microcytic hypochromic anemia, or it's going to be high where we talk about a macrocytic hyperchromic anemia. And regardless, it's going to shift the curve which way? Down. But anytime I think about a microcytic hypochromic anemia, I always think about the big four differential for your boards. What are the classic big four? Number one always has to be what? Iron deficiency anemia. Number two is always going to be thalassemia. Number three would be some anemia of chronic disease. And number four is always going to be 
sideroblastosis. Now, if we're going to talk about macrocytic anemias, well, the differential could be very broad, but for the boards, there's really only two causes we need to think about. Number one will always have to be B12 deficiency. And B12 deficiency loves to have multiple names, right? We call it a megaloblastic anemia. Sometimes if it's secondary to autoantibodies against parietal cells, we call that a what? A pernicious anemia. And of course, the other thing I was thinking about that gives you a macrocytic megaloblastic anemia could be folate deficiency, which we don't commonly see here in the U.S. So I'm not worried about that as much. But the, take, the teaching point is this is a great integration slide because no matter what the etiology of the anemia is, it's going to shift the curve which way? Down. So what did we go over? Shifting the curve to the left, shifting the curve to the right, going up, going down, and now it's time to integrate our knowledge. So remember, the one of the choices on the question I gave you was, what was total oxygen content? And I said total oxygen content is made up of how many components? Three. How many are measurable? Two. So what do we have here? We have your partial pressure of arterial oxygen, otherwise known as the dissolved oxygen. This contributes to the oxygen tension in the blood. So that's going to be one part. The second part is going to be the amount of hemoglobin, the amount of taxicabs. And remember, this is what's going to shift the curve up or shift the curve down. And these two are the only two measurable things of total oxygen content. Over here, this is going to be the amount of oxygen that's going to be bound to the hemoglobin. And that's going to be when we talk about shifting the curve to the right or to the left. So this part is not going to be measurable. It's more of a concept. But all these three things together equal what? Total oxygen content. So now let's bring it all together. So I have three examples. We have what happens when you're anemic, regardless of the etiology, always look at the MCV. What happens when you're polycythemic, regardless of etiology, always check the erythropoietin level to figure out your differential. And what did we just talk about in my question today? Carbon monoxide toxicity. So let's answer these questions for the board exams. When someone comes in and they're anemic, what happens to your partial pressure of arterial oxygen? The answer is nothing, because what are the only three things that affect the partial pressure of arterial oxygen? You got it. It's going to be, are they in high altitude? What is your altitude? What is their ventilation? And what is your FiO2? And when you're anemic, it doesn't affect any of those three things. So it's going to be normal. If you're anemic, what happens to your total hemoglobin concentration? It's going to be what? Low. And does anemia affect shifting the curve to the right or to the left? The answer is no, because what do we think about shifting? You're either going to tap to the right or anti-tap to the left. So it's going to be normal. So when we talk about total oxygen content, what did I say? If one of these three goes down, well, total oxygen content has to go down. So the answer is when you're anemic, total oxygen content is low. How about when you're polycythemic? So is having excess amount of RBCs and hemoglobin, is that going to influence your P little AO2? The answer is no. What affects the P little AO2? Altitude, ventilation, and FiO2. So it has to be normal. It's not affecting those. What happens to your total hemoglobin concentration? Of course, it's going to go up. Now, is being polycythemic going to affect shifting the curve to the right or to the left? 
No. What affects that? Tap to the right, <laughs> anti-tap to the left. So it's going to be normal. And if one of these goes up, well, what happens to total auction content? It has to go up. So last but not least, let's talk about carbon monoxide toxicity exactly on this question. So is carbon monoxide going to affect the amount of dissolved oxygen, the P little AO2? The answer is no. What three things? Altitude, minute ventilation, and FiO2. So the P little AO2 in carbon monoxide toxicity will be normal. Does carbon monoxide affect the amount of hemoglobin in the body? The answer is no. So it's going to be normal. Does carbon monoxide affect the amount of oxygen bound to the hemoglobin? The answer is yes. Because which way is it going to shift that oxygen dissociation curve? To the left. And therefore, it's going to be low. Less oxygen will be bound to the hemoglobin. And if one of these goes down, what happens to total oxygen content? It definitely goes down. Uh, let me just say this, these concepts right here are triple star high yield, not only to get the score you want on the board exams, but to be the most amazing doctor you can be on the wards. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this week's case. Please follow me on Instagram in Dr. underscore Raj underscore to get more pearls. And I'll see you next time for another case that will integrate the basic science and clinical medicine. All right, as promised, some future directions for ITB. Let me say I'm just so appreciative of everyone who listens to one of ITB's six podcasts. I've been at this for four years now and definitely want to continue making content. But as you know, there are two commodities that are always in short supply, time and money. Time to create content and then, of course, the financial means to pay the team members who produce it. And we principally fund ITB through Audio QBank subscriptions. So if you're a premium subscriber, double thank you. We've been trying to make the Audio QBank the perfect supplemental resource for boards prep so you can, quote, study on the go. Nevertheless, you're not just getting some audio optimized USMLE practice questions when you download the ITB mobile app and subscribe. You're also giving ITB the support it needs to, to stay on air, basically. So again, thank you for considering becoming a premium Boards Insider. If you like what we do but haven't subscribed yet, go to InsideTheBoards.com and sign up today. We lead with a student-first mindset, so don't forget, if you join for 90 days or more, you can actually pick the exact date for your access to end for just 75 cents a day. I thought that was a great idea for us to do so you're not like paying for extra two weeks or something or whenever your test date is. Um, at any rate, um, time, that's second commodity. Mine has become a lot more limited as of late due to some recent needs to prioritize the fam and uh, I've been doing more clinical work uh, since I get paid for that. <laughs> and to this end, the partners and friends of ITB, if you will, the people you've heard as guests on our shows over the years, uh, they're, they're helping me and ITB on that front. So periodically you'll hear episodes like this one with Dr. Raj. We want to be able to give you something to study on the go more consistently. And our partner and supporter Elsevier has granted us permission to turn Dr. Raj's case of the month into a podcast episode. 
And we'll probably be doing that monthly if you find this helpful. Uh, you can find more of these cases of the month with their full like PowerPoint presentations on Elsevier's Student Hub, uh, which is linked in the show notes. Um, and then uh, just to kind of continue on this, there are a number of content partners we think offer some value and make sure or can make sure that ITB puts stuff out consistently. So we'll be testing these and I would really like your feedback on whether something like this case of the month is helpful for your learning on the go. So send me an email, patrick at insidetheboards.com with your thoughts. And if you've got really good things to say, even better, you could leave comments as a review on Apple Podcasts app, just saying. And then, I mean, we're like really responsive to feedback. And I'm not kidding, like when I say things like, ITB is something you're building too. Uh, for real, about 10% of med students listen to one of our shows. And if you think about it, that's a huge opportunity for us all to build a community that affects the culture of medicine in the future, and especially medical education in a positive way. So if one person emails and says, hey, Dr. Raj, Dr. Raj's case in the month rocks, and there's no other feedback we get, then we'll probably just be doing more with Dr. Raj's cases of the month. And that one person will have literally influenced the direction of our organization. So again, we welcome your feedback um, uh, of any type. Day-to-day, -day, ITB is basically me, Madison Linden, our admin director, Chris Brightigan, our creative director. They help produce these shows. And of course, you know, there's our other partners like Dr. O'Connell. We've got guests and other med-ed companies that help make this possible. Uh, but they work exclusively, uh, Madison and Chris do, for our podcast company. So they're the operational force that holds things together. And they very much appreciate feedback from listeners. They're not physicians or med students. So when you provide like feedback, emails, tweets, whatever, you're also helping them select ideal content or optimize app features. Uh, in a word, like create ITB is the resource you want or need to learn, uh, especially when it takes me days to get back to them because I'm in clinic or on labor and delivery or dealing with this recent life stuff. All right, and also I told you, uh, I would tell you about kind of like the series initiatives that we have upcoming. Uh, so first up, we've got a health system science uh, project in the works. It's gonna be an eight part episode uh, series with um, collaboration uh, from Elsevier and the American Medical Association with the support of this really cool company called Panacea Financial, um, who are financially supporting this and honestly, like, even if they didn't do that, I'd be telling you about it because they are like an upstart bank and financial services company for medical students and doctors. And actually, their focus is on medical students right now. Um, so I, I know that their mission aligns with ours and that more than other, you know, uh, companies in, in whatever space, they, quote, get it when it comes to being in med school. At any rate... Health System Science Series is coming up. It's going to cover the sorts of things you might see on the USMLE related to health system science and um, all the things that make that up and go into it, like healthcare economics, systems-based thinking, healthcare teams. And actually, it's like 8 to 10% those uh, that subject on the USMLE. So it's worth thinking of not just as like fluff or add-on. It's an integral component of what we do as physicians. 
Plus, there's actually a health system science standardized exam that the AMA and NBME are uh, have made together, and uh, it it may end up becoming kind of like one of the standardized exams that you will have to take throughout your medical education. Um, so you know that might be on the horizon. And then the other series I'm super stoked about is our well, I don't know what to call it, so suggestions welcome, but pretty much an introduction to addiction medicine for med students. You may have heard that I opened up a level one opioid treatment program, um, incorrectly and less ideally often referred to as a like methadone clinic. Uh, but we help people specifically with opiate use disorders. And honestly, this has like completely changed my outlook on life and really like restored my love for being a doctor. Like these patients are written off so often in our healthcare systems um, who have this condition, this disease that is actually really treatable and they are more appreciative than any other patients I've met. I mean, I like really like going in and doctoring, which um, if I'm honest, has not really happened in a while. Uh, so I'm getting into this whole addiction medicine space and we've got a bunch of luminaries in the addiction medicine field who are going to come talk to us. I mean, seriously, it'll be like 10, 15 hours of content on this subject, which only gets about two hours of um, uh, uh, coverage in undergraduate medical education. But really, if you think about it, it touches on pretty much every specialty and students need to uh, know more about it. And hopefully in doing so, I can uh, with the others participating, convince you that addiction medicine is one, a specialty or practice setting, which you should definitely consider in your future career, uh, but more importantly, help you think about addiction as a disease and the patients who have it in a way that avoids the kind of honestly shitty attitudes that uh, these patients often experience within our healthcare systems. Uh, that's my goal, and uh, I'm, I'm very stoked on it. You know, there's tons of stuff on the boards about or related to addiction. Uh, you know, opioid pharmacology is huge. Um, the reversal of various overdoses, flumazenil for benzodiazepines always shows up on exams. The stages of change in terms of, you know, like the behavioral aspects of addiction, neurobiology, I mean, a lot of this stuff is very relevant and will be covered on your exams. Um, so if you would like to participate on any of our series or have suggestions, then always, always email feedback, like I said before. But please tell your friends about um, especially these two series we're doing because they're honestly really close to my heart and kind of the reason I, I wanted to have the um, ability to kind of present this sort of stuff and present it in a a way that um, is a little bit countercultural within medicine and restores that sense of the art of medicine as being primary over the science because again it's not just applied biology or excuse me because medicine is an art first that uses science um, all right that's all i got thanks for listening and thanks to chris and madison for making this possible couldn't do it without them. They deserve a round of applause. Insert clap track. <laughs>